0: this morning, as we continue to work through uh, the Bible together in the course of this year, we're going to be looking at the book of Exodus, chapter 12. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus, chapter 12. We're just going to look at the first uh, 30 verses. So Exodus 12. And if you've been doing the Bible reading program and you've kept up, congratulations, you're over one month in. And if you can keep up for one month, then you can just do that uh, however many more months there are in the year, and you'll be just fine. So Exodus chapter 12, uh, beginning at verse 1, these are familiar words, uh, but, but by God's grace concentrate. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they're to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire, with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses, for whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another one on the seventh day, do not work at all on, the, on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the fourteenth day until the evening of the twenty first day. For seven days no yeast is to be found in your houses. And anyone, whether foreigner or native born, who eats anything with yeast in it, must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat. Nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes to the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt For there was not a house without someone dead. Before we uh, consider this passage together, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would Uh, lead us and guide us uh, through your truth this morning. I ask that you will enable us to see uh, this redemptive event, one of both grace and judgment, through the lens of your eyes. I pray that you will allow us to see the consequences of sin and rebellion against you, but also allow us to see the incredible, redeeming grace that provides a substitute Lamb whose blood covers all of our sin. Father, I pray that as a church family that you will bind us closer together. I pray that you will allow us to truly be and to function as a redeemed community. Uh, I I pray that you will, by your Spirit, help us to love and appreciate and uh, just thoroughly enjoy one another more and more. I pray that we will be holy. I pray that we will be loving. I pray that you will make us individuals who both desire and are empowered to live a righteous life in an increasingly unrighteous society. I pray that you will help us to find the balance between uh, standing for truth and speaking condemnation and showing love. I pray that you will help us to be your vessels. I pray that you will help us to be uh, the people that you want us to be at this time in history. uh, With all that is going on in our world, you have made us to be here and to be here now. So help us to see what you place before us, both the, uh, the wonderful things that give us unspeakable joy, but also the tremendously challenging and difficult things that we need to, even by force, oppose. Lord, we confess that we do not really know how to live life well, and so we pray that you will teach us. By your Spirit, help us to set aside the values of our world and to live completely and entirely for Jesus Christ. We ask this knowing that it is impossible for us, but entirely possible by your Spirit and Word. So we commit ourselves to you in confidence and in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you've been reading Exodus, uh, you will, of course, remember that, uh, and even if you haven't been reading Exodus lately, you're you're doubtless familiar with these stories. That at this point, Egypt has been the home of Israel in a positive way with Joseph, even though then, at the end of Genesis, we find out that even when things were going well, no one thought that that Egypt was actually Israel's home forever. Joseph didn't want to be buried in state. He wanted his bones brought up to the promised land. What you find out in in two chapters in Exodus is that when Israel actually goes out, they fulfill that promise. And so there's that intertextual link there that they actually bring up Joseph's bones in the coffin, bringing him to the promised land in fulfillment of what he had asked them to do. But you've had a lot of things that have happened in the first 11 chapters, and, and you're familiar with that. You will recall, uh, interestingly enough, that the problem for Israel is that God is blessing them in accord with his covenant promises. So what you find again and again and again in the first couple chapters of Exodus is that the people were fruitful and multiplied. That language is used again and again and again and again. That's the covenant blessing. That was the, the blessing to Adam. That was the blessing to Noah. That was the blessing to Abraham. So what you find out is that God is blessing Israel. They're experiencing the blessings of the covenant. And it is precisely as they flourish that Egypt starts to oppress Now, because the land is being filled with Israelites, according to God's covenant faithfulness, the world starts to get angry. The world starts to take notice. And the Egyptians increase the pressure on the Israelites precisely because the land is filled with them. That's the words of the Egyptians. Covenant blessings in a fallen world sometimes bring persecution often will bring oppression. That's exactly what Israel experiences. Now Moses, you will recall, just happens to be placed in a little basket, and just happens to be floated out on the Nile, and just happens to be picked up by one of the servants of one of Pharaoh's daughters. Now, you must, you must understand, and this sort of wrecks the Hollywood story, and I apologize for this in advance. Um, you, you, all of these Hollywood stories about Moses and, and you know, Egypt and all the rest, they kind of pit it like, there's Moses going up against, you know, Grandpa, the Pharaoh, and there's this really tight family. Um, do you remember how many wives Solomon had? About a thousand, seven hundred, technically, and then three hundred concubines. Those are all stylized figures. You do understand that, but it it was a lot. Pharaoh didn't have just one wife. He didn't just have one daughter. In fact, there's a very, very good chance that Pharaoh had absolutely no clue who his numerous grandchildren were. So you can't possibly think that this is sort of like a personal vendetta with Moses and Pharaoh. Pharaoh probably saw him once or twice and then that was the end of it. Okay? So so the Hollywood script is a little bit off at that point. However, it is Pharaoh's daughter. And Pharaoh has decided that all the baby boys are going to die. Fascinatingly, what you get is this basket is covered with pitch, right, to make it waterproof. The Hebrew word used for the basket that uh, Moses is placed and is used in only one other place in the, in the Old Testament, and, and you will know where that place yes. is. It's the Ark of Noah. Moses is literally placed in an ark, put out on the water, and preserved by the miraculous uh, saving power of God. Really, really remarkable coincidences. So he ends up growing up, Finds out that he's an Israelite and then kills an Egyptian who's oppressing uh, the the slaves. Moses has the intuition of being the deliverer, but when he tries to do it in his own power fails. That's important. In fact, he ends up going out into the wilderness. How long is he in the wilderness before he comes back? Forty years which is precisely how long he's going to be shepherding Israel in the desert when, after the Lord brings them out. So what you have here is you have Moses as a failed deliverer, but in Exodus 3, the burning bush, the Lord reveals himself, I am who I am. Yahweh, there is no one like me. I have seen the oppression of my people. I will bring them out. I will bring judgment on, Israel's, or on Egypt's gods. That statement in, in chapter 12 here is shockingly important. What God is doing is he is demonstrating through all of the plagues that he, not Egypt's deities, are the ones of the power of life and death. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile as a god. What's What's the first sign of God's power? Turns the Nile to blood. Your source of life I can turn into a source of death just like that. Dig along the trenches and find, a, and, and dig, dig along the side and try to find some clean water. The, the Egyptians worship snakes. Moses' staff can become a snake and swallow up the, snake staffs of the, or swallow up the snakes of the, the magicians and enchanters. The Pharaoh was the, was the God incarnate. Pharaoh was utterly helpless in the face of Yahweh's messengers. The people worship the sun. One of the, the discriminating plagues was darkness in Egypt, but not in Israel. You, you go through all of the plagues. All of the plagues is that God is, is systematically dismantling the Egyptian pantheon. It's what he's doing. He's showing, here, 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 you have a deity. Let them stop me. Who is the God who's in control? And, of course, for people in the ancient world, you do know this: There was an unbreakable connection between gods and land. But Yahweh is in charge of the whole world. Egypt was the superpower of the day, and their deities, therefore, should have been the superpower deities. But even on their home field, God can take them out. That's what you're being told. So all of this climaxes with Pharaoh refusing again and again and again and again to let the people go, and God solidifying his desire in that in order to bring himself glory. Now, you hit chapter 12. Interestingly enough, God says to Israel, this month is to be for you the first month the first month of your year. In other words, the entire calendar of Israel begins with God's redemptive event. Now, that is something which I actually think, although we, don't, we can't just transfer this over to, to non-redeemed nations, there is a bit of a life principle there. How do you mark time? Time really begins with the redemptive event of God in your life. Every single year, Israel's whole society literally started on the basis of this is when God redeemed us. That was the whole point. Their new year was not just about turning a calendar. Their new year was consciously remembering this is when God redeemed. It's actually, I think, a very beautiful thing. They were to choose their animals that they were going to sacrifice on the tenth day but care for them until the 14th day. That is, there was a number of days of observation. There was a number of days of care. There's a number of days to make sure that really, these animals really didn't have any blemish or defect. And then, we're told that everyone in the community was to participate. So so every single person in the community, and you had to be careful that, that you didn't, you know, one family didn't have too much and other people went without. The lambs were all to be sort of, they were to be shared. Now, there likely is just a hint of ecological concern there, but more to the point, it's the redemptive event isn't to be processed in terms of individuality. It's to be processed in terms of community. That is God is providing a lamb, here it's plural, we understand that, but God is providing for us, together. And and we share in this redemptive event. We share in the fellowship of the Lamb. We share in the covering of the blood. This is for us. And it's one time only, so that you don't leave any over for the next day. The next day, if there's anything left, you burn it up. And the reason you do that is because this is once for all. When, When God provides... The lamb, you don't need to keep going back day after day after day to feed on it. It's a one time for all provision and it's communal in its focus. Now, verse 7 says Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamb. So you get this uh, explained in verse 22. In terms of the hiss up in verse 23, when the Lord goes to the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the door from him will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Now notice though, this is absolutely, uh, verse, verse 13 as well, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are and when I see the blood I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Notice, That this is a sign, the blood is a sign, for those who have faith. That you don't do this unless you believe God. So even there, salvation has never been detached from faith in God. Justification is always by substitute blood and faith in that blood. Faith in that provision. So what you have here is you're not going to slaughter a lamb, you're not going to take hyssops, and you're not going to smear blood on the around your doorposts, unless you actually believe God. And what are the promises that are in view here? So you believe God that sheltering under the blood will preserve your life and that you actually won't die and be struck down. But also, you believe that God is going to Bring you out. The, the text makes this very clear. When you come to the land where I will bring you, the Lord says a little bit later on. And so you believe that not only are you not going to die, you believe that God is going to bring you out. There's an eschatological focus. There's a future orientation in terms of promise. God is bringing me out of slavery, under the cover of blood, to the promised land. I believe that. I will put my faith in the Lord To the extent of actually slaughtering what in an agrarian world is an enormous asset, I will give that up in order to demonstrate my trust in the provision of God. And not only that, but you eat, you prepare and eat the meal in the fastest way possible. You You just take the whole thing world, you don't even gut it. You just throw it on the spit. You just, you just put it on the fire. You just, you just cook it all. Head, leg, everything. You're in a rush. You don't have time to, to, to throw yeast in the bread and have it rise. You, you, have, you just need to, you need to bake it. You know, there, there, there's no time. Uh, bitter herbs. There, there's, just, there's no time. And so what you do is, is you're, you're in haste because you're taking this seriously. There's, there's, there's a compulsion here. And then this is how you eat it. You put your sandals on. Because you're leaving. You you don't have your cloak on the hanger. You have it on. Tucked in. Belted up. You're ready to go. Your staff is in your hand while you eat. Because you don't have time to grab it. You are demonstrating in every way, from preparation to consumption, you are demonstrating, I believe. This is not theory. This is not the sort of thing you do if you have some sort of theological, theoretical commitment. It's something you do if you actually believe that God's going to do this. They're not playing games. They're not acting. They're ready. They're ready to follow God. They believe, practically, not just theoretically, that He is going... To deliver them i 'm not sure if you 've ever sat around a table with people who sort of flap out their elbows when, when you 're eating it 's never happened to me, but uh, i mean i don 't do that rather, but, but lots of other people do. You can only imagine you know, what it 's like to, to sit next to Uncle Harry, the arm flapper, when he's got a staff in his hand. You know, it, it's, not, it's not really a comfortable kind of thing. But, but the whole point is that you're not supposed to be comfortable. You're supposed to be ready and willing and prepared to go. Eat it in haste. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am that I am. I am Yahweh. I am, I am, I am the Lord. Ultimately, ultimately, this text is not about Israel. It is not about the lamb. Typologically, yes, but not about these lambs. It is not about Egypt. It is not about Pharaoh. It's not about Moses. It's about Egypt's gods as a foil. To Yahweh. The Lord is the point of this text. And what the Lord is going to do is the Lord is going to show Egypt, you are worshiping the wrong gods. Even there, there is, there's another revelation of mercy for the people. All through the plague, you'll recall there were times when everyone except Pharaoh seemed to know that, that this was a bad idea to keep resisting Yahweh. There were Egyptians who believed the word of the Lord, who brought their animals in before the plague, uh, before the before the great hail fell. Because they believed. And so God, as he was demonstrating his power over the uh, gods of Egypt, systematically, was also bringing Egyptians to a point of belief. So, so you must understand that too. Is, is that the Egyptians, who continued to harden their heart against God, did so in full awareness and knowledge. There's a point where when two critical moments in the plagues. The one is when the, when the magicians come and they say, this is the finger of God. We can't do that. Only people who serve a real God can do that. We can't. That was a clue. And then also, when Pharaoh's advisors come to him and say, look at people go, don't you see that the land is in ruins? That was another sign. There were a lot of, there were a lot of Egyptians who went with Israel when Israel went out because they had put their faith in God and in his promises. But God is showing that he alone is Lord. That's also what will end up saving an enormous number of Canaanites. Rahab's just the first one. I've heard what your God did to Egypt. So God's purposes here bringing judgment on Egypt's gods are redemptive for many. Yahweh alone has the power of life and death. People die when he says, and they live when he says. That also carries forward the the question we've been asking through Genesis. Can God bring life out of death? It's It's here again. That question will continue on all the way through the Old Testament until the cross and resurrection. Now, verses 14 through 16. This is to be commemorated. You realize that unless you pass on things, they're lost. Right? Uh, those who forsake Passover, we're told here, are cut off from the community. In other words, if you are going to be part of the redeemed community, you need to act like someone who is redeemed. You need to continue to tell people about the story of redemption, and you need to continue to live in it yourself. Also, fascinatingly, verse 16, Passover week was bracketed by assemblies of praise and worship. So again, you, you remember, in corporate praise, you begin the week with corporate praise, you end the week with corporate praise. Re- Passover is not merely about you as an individual, it's about this community that God is redeeming. Verse 17, God says, he brings, I will bring out your divisions. Fascinating word. Uh, the word here is actually, it, it, it's a military term. God is bringing out his military divisions. He's bringing out his army. He redeemed and transformed into an army of the Lord. Now, there's, there's, there's a lot more to be said about a lot of these details, but we'll just move to verse 21. Moses tells the people, go and get your animals right now. In verse 22, it talks about the hyssop and the blood. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. That is, you do not go out You do not remove yourself from underneath the cover of the blood of the Lamb. If you are not under the blood, you will die. Do not go out. That is as solemn a warning as you can have. If you are not under the Lamb's blood, you will die. Do not go out. Out, But, here's a promise as wonderful as any in Scripture, verse 23. When the Lord goes to the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he, that is, God, will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. God himself will not allow you to die. Now that is a really, really good promise. If you are under the Lamb's blood, God will not allow you to die. If you are not under the Lamb's blood, your blood is on your own head, and you will. But if you are sheltered by the blood of the Lamb, God himself will ensure that you do not die. Verse 13 says the same thing. I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike evil. God is the one who strikes. He is the one who kills. He is the one who preserves life. That's our God, the one with the power of life and death. Now just, just for a moment though, I mean, just, just, just for one moment, allow yourself just the utter spiritual and emotional and aesthetic and even physical luxury of knowing that if you're in Christ, you will not die. Don't don't rush past that. That's your whole eternal life. The Lamb's blood covers you and you will not die. God said so. If God be for us, who can be against us? What can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? God promises you will not die. If God promised me that I'd I'd be wealthy and happy, I'd think that was pretty good, but a promise that I will not die, that's an awful lot better. Obeying his instructions as verse 24 is a lasting ordinance. When you enter the land, that is future provision. So you obey as you hope in promises for the future. I will obey now as I look to an event, to, as I look to an experience I have not yet had but will because God is faithful to his word. I will obey as I trust in the promises for the future. I am redeemed now, bought out of slavery for eschatological glory. I will live like it today. I will obey with joy. And the response is the end of verse twenty-seven. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. You realize that you realize that you 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 actually. Well, I'll, I'll say this almost more strongly than I ought, perhaps. If you do not end up worshiping the Lord when you think about redemption i will tell you it's because you're not redeemed you just can't get it and not worship the the only, the only way to not be worshiping is to not have experienced it now now i will i will i will Milita- uh, militate against that a little bit, and and say that yes, we go through time. Yes, yes, we backslide. Yes, 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 yes. But the a fundamental principle, if if thinking about salvation and and life and substitutionary atonement and Christ and glory, if that never moves you to worship, I, I just don't think you can possibly have actually experienced the reality of what it is to be given those things in union with Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. I just don't think that's possible. These people haven't even been redeemed yet they've just been told they're going to be, and they're worshiping and and, and not only that but but these people' they're just I, mean, I, I don't want to be pejorative here they're, they're just being redeemed out of physical slavery. We're redeemed out of spiritual slavery. They're redeemed out of, out of Egypt. We're redeemed out of, a, out of a, what is literally a, a goddamned world. They are—they are they're redeemed to go to Canaan. We're redeemed to go to a new heavens and new earth. I mean, if, if, if they could worship, they're worshiping before they get the shadow. We're worshiping, looking back at what Christ did on the cross, the fulfillment, knowing that the the, the greater fulfillment and consummation is in the future. And and so I tell you, if you can't worship, I just don't think you can possibly get it. That you just haven't got it. Which means that even now, God calls you to come and get it. Come and put your faith in Him. Come and trust Him. Come and be redeemed. Come and and find shelter under the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, and live. Trust him. Trust his promises and worship. And in verse 28, the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded, that is worship and obey. It's a matter literally of life and death. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there there was not a house without someone dead. Despite all Despite all of the evidence of Yahweh's power, the people continued en masse to reject him and his truth. And what they receive is exact judicial reciprocity. The text begins, Exodus begins, with with, with Pharaoh doing what to the firstborn children? slaughtering them. This Egyptian generation was putting to death the firstborn sons of the Israelites in their oppression. Verse 30 says that there was loud wailing in Egypt. That is the exact same Hebrew term that's used in chapter 3, verse 7 and chapter 3, verse 9 for the wailing and outcry of the Israelites as the Egyptians oppressed them they are literally reaping what they've sown in the previous chapters. God has called Israel his firstborn son in Exodus. Let my firstborn son go. Egypt is killing God's firstborn son. And so then they reap what they sow. But there's something more more going on here. Remember Genesis 3.15. The serpent will strike the heel of the seed of the woman, and he will crush the serpent's head. This sets up two contrasting lines that run, certainly through Genesis and and beyond. It sort of arcs all the way to to Revelation, actually. But it's a major Genesis theme, a Pentateuchal theme. The seed of the woman has a certain line. The seed of the serpent has a certain line. And here, what you have is in judgment on Egypt's gods, the two lines again come together. Pharaoh is the serpent's line trying to destroy God's seed. Egypt is striking the heel of God's son. And in doing so, experiences death. This is precisely a temporal fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, which is looking all the way forward to the time when the serpent attacks God's son on the cross and dies in the process. The Egyptians have been given opportunity to repent and trust the Lord, and they've refused. Death is also, of course, a uni- it's a universal judgment against sin that is Everyone who sins deserves death. So the Egyptians here are are simply, again, experiencing what their sins deserve. Something worth saying, though, with all the death in this chapter, lambs and and people, you, you, you do realize that, and I know that you know this, I know that you've heard this, you've heard this, but, The the angel of death will pass over those who have faith in Jesus. But only, only, only because the angel of death did not pass over Jesus. The firstborn son of God, the Lamb, is the one who is struck down by God so that his blood can cover those who have faith in Jesus. And so we as the children of God, we do not die. The angel of death passes us by. God ensures that we are not struck down. Why? Why? Because he did not spare his own son. Do you know do you, do you know that? that we can live forever, we who deserve death, because the only one who didn't deserve death chose to die. He went out of the house knowing that he would be slain so that people like us could be saved may God God help us to to grasp a little bit of what that means He's, he's given us this as a feast to commemorate to help us and so I'm going to trust and hope That God's Spirit through these emblems helps us understand just a little bit: the body, the blood, Christ, the Lamb dying for us, so that we can live. May God help us to get it. I'm going to ask uh, the gentleman to come forward who can help distribute these things, and for those of you uh, who will. Who aren't coming to the front? You can just pray uh, individually for a moment. Then we'll celebrate communion together.